Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Chris Connolly. And I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Above all, we love bringing librarians and great books together. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hi, everyone. It's Lainey from the Library Love Fest team. I'm so excited for an editor's unedited episode today. Um, and I would like to welcome Sarah Birmingham from the Echo team. She's an editor. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Lainey. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much for having us. Thanks for being here. Um, and I'm going to turn it over to Sarah because she has a great interview lined up for us. I am so excited um, to have a chance to be here today with the incredible Adam Harris. Adam is a staff writer at The Atlantic, where he's covered education and national politics since 2018. And before that, he was a reporter at the Chronicle of Higher Education, where he covered federal education policy and historically black colleges and universities. He is a 2021 New America Fellow and the recipient of a Rising Star Award by the News Media Alliance. His first book, The State Must Provide, will be on sale August 10th. Adam, hey, how are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. This is a really special uh, experience for me and maybe a little bit different, I think, than some of these other episodes because we actually started working together relatively recently. I had the great honor of being a newcomer to the project um, not too long ago. And so we've worked together on the publishing side of things, but I'm very selfishly excited to get a little bit more of a glimpse into your process and what things were like behind the scenes as you were working on this book. Um, So just to start us off, I'd love it if you could just tell us in your own words a bit about what your book is about. Yeah. um, So The State Must Provide is a narrative history of racial inequality in higher education, kind of examining um, the foundations of, of that inequality in higher ed, right? That, that it's not necessarily just the, um, oh, there are low enrollments at university, big university X here, and um, not that many uh, black or brown students get into Harvard or what, whatever it may have you, but, but really understanding the foundations of, of America's higher education system, you know, really kind of going back to 1862 with um, the passage of the Morrill Act, um, kind of the foundations and the bedrock of the public university system that we recognize today and tracing um, how inequality and um, racial discrimination just continue to morph as the laws changed and how intentional um, the sort of inequitable system that we we understand now, um, how intentional the creation of it was, and not only the creation, but the maintenance and maintaining that in, in unequal system. Um, so the book is really an exploration, a narrative exploration of that history um, up to the point of today and, and, and really kind of looking at what can be done to address that centuries long um, this racial discrimination in higher education. Yeah, it is so fascinating um, and just disappointing and terrifying 
how, as you said, persistent these problems have been. It was no accident that things are this way. And you give such um, a comprehensive look at a really wide swath of history. And I'm curious because your background is as a reporter. You, for quite a while, have been reporting on contemporary issues in education, um, talking about racial inequality. Are you kind of a natural historian? What was it like to start working backwards in time? Or did you always kind of have that, that base of knowledge? How did you fall into the, the kind of historical exploration here? Yeah, I, I think the, the historical, um, the, the history piece is something I was always interested in. Um, but I think that the historical exploration really started with a piece that I wrote just before I was leaving the Chronicle of Higher Education. Um, it, it was kind of looking into Mississippi's black colleges um, uh, because, you know, one of the um, uh, landmark civil rights cases of the 20th century um, really hinged on the desegregation of America's higher education system. And that case was based in Mississippi. Um, it was called the Ayers case. And um, at the end of that case, uh, Mississippi's black colleges um, uh, won a settlement of more than $500 million split over 17 years between their three black colleges. Um, and, and that was supposed to um, eliminate the vestiges of, of segregation and, and discrimination in uh, the higher education system. And, and what I was noticing as I sort of looked through the numbers um, was that it, it didn't seem to be adding up, right? That, that um, the program duplication um, where you'd have uh, a unique program at Mississippi Valley State and then in say Delta State, which is a predominantly white institution just a couple miles down the road, um, might have the same program or create the same program. Um, and, and HBCUs are really kind of using these programs as like um, ways to draw in more students and not only black students, but, but also white students to diversify um, their, their student populations. Um, and so, you know, from, from that to um, the, the general um, state of campus, uh, uh, it just, it didn't necessarily seem to be adding up. Um, and, and that actually, dovetailed with what I saw on my campus at Alabama A&M when I was an undergrad, you, right? You drive across town and you go to the University of Alabama at Huntsville and, you know, they have new buildings and they have, uh, you know, there are these um, electric car charging stations and, and just all of these different things that they have at, at UAH that it's like, oh, well, Alabama A&M was a public university in Alabama. Why was they need to put another public university just down the down the street, um, and so once you you start to kind of tug on that thread of of okay, well, why this? And it's like, oh, well, well, that's because segregation was the law in Alabama, and so they created a college in 1950 um, that that white students could go to in Huntsville. And um, you go back a little bit further, and you say, oh, well, segregation was written into the law in, in Alabama in the early 1900s, and then you go even further back. And um, and, and so as you kind of start to, to tug on those threads, I think the history kind of unravels itself in its own way. And, and um, the, the deeper you get, the more you realize that um, kind of how intentional all of this was. Um, and, and so now that we have this um, kind of grown out apparatus with, you know, thousands of colleges and um, that kind of remain unequal, um, it, it, I, I just felt that it was necessary to kind of paint a clear picture of, of how that, that came to be. Um, and so, 
you know, honestly, that that history part and kind of really digging into the archives um, was, you know, one of the, the most enjoyable experiences I've had in a while. <laughs> I would love to hear more about that and, you know, what your research process was like, what kinds of archives were you in? And um, especially, was there anything surprising that you stumbled upon while you were kind of in the weeds of your research? Yeah, uh, so so it was a mix of newspapers, letters back and forth um, from, uh, you know, notable players, um, old congressional records. Um, I, I actually think one, one of the things um, that I found really interesting was, uh, you know, it, it became kind of easy to trace the lineage of, of Mississippi and, and the, um, the issues with, with uh, segregation in higher ed in Mississippi um, to literally right after the Civil War, where you have the faculty on the verge of a revolt and basically saying that we are, we wanted to reassure, they wanted to reassure the white citizens of Mississippi um, that they would not teach an institution that enrolled black students. And this is in, this is in the 1870s, right? You fast forward to 1962 when James Meredith is trying to enroll and it becomes one of the bloodiest battles of, of higher education's kind of integration. Um, and so you're able to kind of trace these these direct lines and and finding um, those letters to the editor from from faculty members in the 1870s and old newspapers. Um, it just really uh, um, kind of threw into stark relief kind of uh, the ways that it's like this was this was both state and federal actors, but it was it, just how embedded it was into into the culture. And then on top of that. Um, some of the, the surprising things were the ways that even when things seem to be for the benefit of Black people, right, um, we've, we've had this, this thought that, you know, the first Murill Act was passed and Black students could not attend those institutions for the most part. Um, mm -hmm. And the second Murill Act is passed in 1890. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden you have, it's like, oh, you, you, you're funding all of these HBCUs. And, and, and the thought is, oh, that's where the HBCUs came from. It was that Congress passed the second Murill Act because they realized their mistake. And that's actually not the case. Congress passed the second Murill Act because those first Murill institutions said they needed more money. Um, and, the, and having extra money for the black students was just sort of um, uh, the thing that they, they needed to, um, to ensure that they could could actually get those funds, so little things like that, um, just just really you know throw in a sharp relief how uh, how intentional all of this is. Yeah, absolutely. You had this line in the book that really struck me, uh, where you say, "Few things change the mind faster than a hit to the pocket," <laughs> and that it definitely comes to bear in the course of a lot of the stories that you're telling here you know, in the rare times when state institutions are allowing for integration by anything other than legal mandate, they're doing so pretty much for financial reasons. And it is just so um, really eye-opening. And I, I just wanted to take a minute to mention too, that for anyone listening, if you think, okay, education, this must be very sort of cerebral and, and all play out, you know, in a very um, mannered way in the courts. There's a lot of visceral detail that really hits you in here. I mean, on one hand, just there's this little um, 
moment where you mentioned that two Kentucky representatives were actually like wrestling on the house floor during one of these debates, um, it which is just wild to imagine. And then also just the really insidious and like petty ways that these white institutions would try to preserve, you know, white supremacy at all costs, even when being technically forced to not. I mean, you, you mentioned at, at a time that when a certain school is forced to integrate, they they literally put up railings between the black and white students in the classroom just as a way of of maintaining that structure. Um, and you you really do a good job of you know you cover so much ground, but um, it's those little details that bring to life what the lived experience must have been like for those like black students who are trying to make progress here. And it must I imagine that coming across those kinds of details in the archives must have been um, quite a trip at times. Yes, it was it was jarring, right? To to really see the ways. Um, I mean, one of the things, um, kind of along that same line of, of putting up the rails and, and really trying to maintain the system, um, when the University of Oklahoma was forced to uh, um, integrate its its higher education institution, um, or, or or at least provide an equal equal education. Um, they were able to rush a law school into existence in five days. Like, it's just, it's, it's incredible the, the extent to which they went to, to preserve, um, you know, that, that the, this, um, the myth of separate but equal um, and, and to continue to, to um, operate these, these fundamentally unequal spaces. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, going back to a little further back in history towards the beginning of the book, um, when you talk about the Morrill Act and the second Morrill Act, uh, do you want to just explain, especially I think with the second Morrill Act and, and what the precedent it kind of set was that that we're still reckoning with and trying to undo today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, with the, the, the second Morrill Act, it, you know, it did help fund a lot of historically black colleges. You know, um, they're the, when you, there's a big organization, the American Association of Public Land Grant Universities. Um, and, and within that, you have the 1890 institutions and the 1890s are, are the, the historically black colleges. But one of the things that that, that second Morrill Act did was it allowed Southern states to um, kind of fundamentally um, provide for separate institutions, right? You have to think of, of when this was. It was it was as states were were sort of trying to um, to test the laws to see what they could separate. This was this was just before Plessy v. Ferguson, um, and and you were actually starting to codify to say that um, you have the separate car act of Louisiana. You have um, several segregating laws, even before Oklahoma becomes a state, it's, it's starting to establish segregating laws. Um, and, and, and so, uh, it allowed the states to, to fund these institutions, but interestingly enough, um, you had some of these institutions were there prior, right? Alcorn state, for example, um, was established in 1871, um, had been severely underfunded. Um, up until 1890, received a, an injection of funding, but they were like it was like the little things that would that would happen over the course, right? So if your school didn't have a graduate program, uh, the state would pay 
their, your HBCU didn't have a graduate program. The state would pay to send black students out of state, but they would also dock the HBCU funding um, to do that. And oftentimes more funding than they actually spent to send those students out of state. So saying, oh, we're appropriating $5,000 to send our black students to, um, you know, Meharry and Howard Medical School and, and wherever. Um, but we're also going to reduce our appropriation to Kentucky State or wherever it may be by $5,000. Um, and then you only end up spending about $600 to actually send those students out of state because tuition's low. Um, and so it, it was like, it's little things like that that allowed them to create a separate bucket of institutions. And then you see report after report after study after report that say states are underfunding these institutions. And, you know, representatives, um, there are a couple of points in the book where I, I point to the conversations that representatives were having um, in different state houses across the country. Um, and they would say, you know, I've always been in support of doing whatever is necessary to ensure that our historically black college is, is up to snuff and um, has all of the, the latest resources, when in practice, um, that was never the case. Um, and, and they would say this and then, you know, three years later, they would do a, uh, they would have somebody come in and do a study and they would say, well, you're, you're, um, the men's dorm is literally in a puddle. Um, the, uh, you know, the, um, there, there are things hanging down from buildings and, um, you know, the, the, the learning that's going on on campus, is, it seems to be great. The teachers are, are, are um, uh, flourishing, the students are flourishing, but they're doing so in these kind of squalid conditions. Um, so just imagine what they could do with the resources that you're providing to these uh, predominantly white institutions. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think thinking about zooming ahead a little bit, one thing that comes through really clearly that took me by surprise is that this is very much, although it has really deep roots, historical roots, it's very much not like done and settled. Like, well, and this is how it all panned out. Like, this is this is what the end result was. This is something that is not in the past. It's changing here all the time where people are reckoning with it in a number of different ways, both kind of morally and like legally in a very practical sense. Um, and we actually had to make, you know, a late stage update to the book right before it went to press because there was a recent development that we had to capture. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what's going on right now? Where do we stand today? Yeah, so I mean, there are still several states that have not proven to the education department that they've desegregated their higher education and eliminated the vestiges of racial discrimination in higher ed. Um, so, so just starting from, from that point, that, that there are still states that the education department is actively investigating, well, um, actively used, used loosely actively. there, <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> that the education department should be under the law, under Title VI, should be investigating. Um, uh, and, and from there, you have other states, right? Mississippi, for example, 99% of first-time, full-time freshmen, um, white freshmen in Mississippi uh, that go to college do so at the predominantly white institutions, right? Um, and in Oklahoma, uh, you know, there are about 1,500 Black students at Langston University. Um, between the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, they only have about 1,800 black students. Between both of the two biggest universities in the states that have, that have about 40,000 students total. 
Um, so uh, undergraduate students alone. Um, so just thinking about that, thinking about the fact that the majority of state flagship institutions, you know, the institutions with the most money, the most resources, the most ability to provide scholarships and tutoring and um, all of the things that students may need, um, most of those institutions have fewer than 10% black students. Um, and in several states, uh, the gap between the, the number of black um, high school graduates and um, the number of freshmen at the flagship institutions, it's, it's more than double, right? Um, so there are, there are um, and then, you know, there are also the ways that uh, performance-based funding models are, um, you know, settling the institutions with more black students with fewer resources. So even, even not just HBCUs, right? So if you look at Kentucky, a place like Moorhead State that has more black students than the University of Kentucky or Louisville is going to get less state funding than, than um, the University of Kentucky. Um, uh, per, and that's per student. So not just overall, just, just per student. Um, and so it's really kind of there needs to be a deeper interrogation. It's like, it's, as you said, it's not just that history. It's the, it's the now, right? It's the ways that that history is, is affecting the present um, and the ways that, that that foundation that was set, you know, more than a century and a half ago um, is influencing our higher education system today. Absolutely. And, you know, you have a number of metrics by which you kind of prove these inequalities and, they're really, um, for anyone who has an interest in higher education, but also just like the state of racial inequality in the U.S. on, on any level, seeing the breakdown of the average public funds spent to educate a Black student versus a white student in this country, which you, you make reference to, is just, it's, it's horrifying to see. From K-12, through higher education, right? The, the, the funding disparity um, is ever present. And, and when you think about, as you mentioned, kind of the broad swath of, of systemic discrimination, systemic racism, um, the issues that the nation needs to confront, um, this has been a problem that was identified in 1947 with the Truman Commission, um, that's identified in the 1960s, um, that, that America knows that it has this problem, and yet, right, and yet it continues to reinforce, um, reinforce a system and, and kind of prop up a system uh, that is fundamentally inequitable. Um, and, you know, there, there are a lot of conversations now, um, there have been several conversations over the last, uh, in the past election and, and on through the first couple of months of the Biden administration about what can be done um, to to um, to lift up HBCUs, to lift up the schools where um, Black and Brown students attend, um, and, and provide them with the resources that they need to be successful. Um, and I, I point back to the uh, um, a quote that I had in the book from uh, a state lawmaker in Missouri who who said that yes, it may be expensive um, to uh, to basically lift up uh, these institutions, um, but you know, black people, this is a black lawmaker in Missouri, said black people don't, you know, we didn't create this unequal system. We're, we're just existing in it. Um, and if, if you want to 
we kind of understand America as an experiment. We're always trying to work to make it a more perfect union, a more equitable union, a, a place where um, the creed that is set out in the Declaration of Independence is lived up to. Right? We can we have the um, uh, every man has a right to life, liberty, or the pursuit of happiness. Right? This and the, that education piece and knowing that the founders put such a high premium on higher education as a place where people could learn how to be good citizens, right? Like this is a place where um, you can not only teach people the arts and the sciences, but you also teach them how to um, how to be good citizens. And if, the if you're looking at, you know, for people who love to quote the founders, right? Um, if you're looking at an inequitable higher education system, then you're looking at inequitable citizenship. Um, and, 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 you know, there is, um, those connections kind of when you when you really grapple with and, and think through the history um, are, are kind of just become even more galling as present injustices um, from states not matching the funding that they're required to match to states literally giving predominantly white institutions um, money that that should be owed to, to black colleges. Um, you know, it just makes it even more galling. Absolutely. So beautifully said. And uh, I only wish that we had longer to talk because there's there's so much more to this book. You have ideas for solutions. You have great insights. And um, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk today. And um, thanks so much for having us on to the library team. The State Must Provide will be on sale August 10th. And I hope everyone will check it out. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.